The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Serving spiritual seekers around the world. Unity Online Radio. Thank you for tuning in for this Unity Partner Program. Unity Online Radio partners with spiritual leaders from organizations whose mission and messages complement Unity's. We are pleased to bring you this program on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with host Victoria Moran. Victoria is an author, inspirational speaker, and a certified holistic health counselor and vegan lifestyle coach. She's here to entertain, educate, and inspire you on your journey to look and feel amazing, eat extraordinary food, help animals, and create a physical body perfectly attuned to spiritual growth. Now, let's get this party started. Here is your host, Victoria Moran. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome to the Main Street Vegan Show. My guests today are so fabulous and fascinating that I am going to try to get my little pre-notes into a minute and a half. Let's see how well I do. The first thing I want to let you know is that we have the show notes, the little explanation with all of the URLs and things for guests from every show, finally where they're supposed to be. So if you go to MainStreetVegan.net and click on podcast, it will take you to the archives of this show and you can listen to your heart's content, but you'll also see a little drop box that says show notes. So if you want to go back and say, oh gosh, what was the name of that person's book or, or the website for that person's organization, uh, it will be there in the show notes. Also, we're starting something very special on the Main Street Vegan Facebook page. So if you haven't liked Main Street Vegan, please do so. And here's what we're going to be doing for everybody who likes us for the entire month of December. It's our little holiday gift to you. Every weekday in December, we will be doing a recipe at 3, so 3 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time. We will put up a wonderful recipe from a great friend, some wonderful blogger, cookbook author, and on Thursdays for Throwback Thursday, you will get one of my antiquated recipes from my many, many years of being vegan. I have quite a collection. Some come from my mom and some come from... People who are no longer with us and cookbooks that are out of print. So you'll really get some historicity on your Thursdays in December. So please give us a like over there on Facebook at Main Street Vegan. I hope I did it in 90 seconds because I want to introduce you to someone fabulous. And she is Hope Bohannock. Hope has been active in animal protection and environmental activism for over 20 years. She is the author of The Ultimate Betrayal. Is there happy meat? Hmm, we're going to find that out. She's a nationally recognized leader and speaker in this movement and currently serving as projects manager for United Poultry Concerns, as well as working on her second book, The Humane Hoax. Welcome, Hope Bohannock. Thank you, Victoria. It's great to be here. Well, it's wonderful to be talking with you. So what inspired your book, The Ultimate Betrayal? Well, you know, I, I've been vegan myself for 26 years uh, and, you know, I've been having conversations with people all that time about our food and the animals that are bred and killed for our food and, uh, and the conversations, you know, were kind of going along the same way. People would ask about 
protein and other issues um, that we would hear over and over. But something started shifting maybe about five years ago or so, a little more than that, where people started saying things like, well, my, my eggs are free range. Or, you know, I get local uh, uh, dairy. Um, and you started hearing these words and labels like cage-free and sustainable and um, other words that, that people were labeling animal foods with where, um, you know, they were feeling that, that these issues, all these issues that we know, you know, are such a problem in raising animals for food, uh, the, uh, you know, environmental impact and the, 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 the you know, just um, ethical issues, the um, tragic and uh, horrific conditions these animals live in, they felt that these were being addressed uh, by these new supposedly smaller scale uh, farms. So I felt it was a really important thing to look into. And I live in Sonoma County, California. That's about an hour north of San Francisco, and it's really very popular here. We have the locavore movement and slow food movement, and you're seeing, you know, meat sold at farmer's markets, and, um, you know, uh, uh, these labels are just abundant in our stores. So I did extensive research. I went to these small farms. I went to these family farms. I uh, interviewed farmers. I interviewed people that had worked at these places. I uh, went to animal rescue facilities where they had rescued animals from these small-scale operations. And, uh, you know, I, I compiled it all in the book. And, you know, this kind of sums it up. I, I thought that I was going to need to say again and again, when I first went into the book, I was ready to concede and say, well, free range is better, but going vegan fast. Or, you know, organics better, but going vegan fest uh, for environmental, for the animals. Unfortunately, that is not the case. That is not the case. Um, I, the conditions are generally no different. Uh, there can be minimal improvements, but then there can be other situations that are even worse. So it's, you know, the, it's, there's such a variety, unfortunately, of um, of, of of uh, conditions and farms, but but across the board, there are inherent cruelties that just cannot be eliminated with a label. Um, separation of families and mutilations of their bodies and slaughter at a very young age, you know, brutal, uh, um, very horrifying slaughter. You know, these, these things are still present in all these labels that we're seeing, and uh, it's, it's very sad. So I see it as the the catchphrase, what you were talking about. Yesterday, I was at the farmer's market, just walking through. I wasn't there to shop, and I saw this big display of Brussels sprouts and this giant sign that said cage-free. And I looked around to see if they were selling eggs or, or chickens, and maybe they were, but I didn't see them. All I saw were all these Brussels sprouts, and it said cage-free. And I'm thinking, have we gotten so to the point where this is a positive catchphrase in people's minds that they're going to stick it there next to the Brussels sprouts? <laughs> it was probably, probably tongue in cheek, <sighs> uh, but but yeah, that's it's you know it's kind of ridiculous how how meaningless this has all become. Um, well, you know, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, and there is another term that you have really done some amazing writing on uh, very recently. You can find that piece at freefromharm.org, and we'll put the exact link uh, on the show notes. But you've written an article saying we shouldn't even talk about factory farming. What do you mean? Well, the term factory farming, you know, originally, and and, uh, for decades, for two or three decades, we've been using this term, uh, animal advocates, and uh, we've done a really great job of exposing the horrors of animal agriculture with, um, you know, the undercover investigations, and now people have seen, um, you know, the the videos online, or they've heard a newscast about uh, the confinement conditions and brutal um, places and just the filth and uh, misery that these animals live in. And we've used the term factory farming to describe this, uh, this horror. And, you know, it's done its job. Uh, People hear factory farming and they, you know, think of 
um, all these horrible conditions and places. But what's happened is now that we're having this shift to um, an alternative animal product that has these labels that we're talking about, we've almost inadvertently created an alternative to factory farming in these small-scale um, and, you know, alternatively labeled animal products. So an example is, you know, people, you'll be talking to people and say, oh, you know, factory farming is terrible, and they will think in their minds, oh, but my meat isn't factory farmed. I get it at Whole Foods. Or, you know, my, my eggs aren't factory farmed. I bought them at the, at the farmer's market, thinking that there is a difference uh, and that, you know, that factory farming is only the big, terrible, um, you know, uh, uh, situations and that there are alternatives and that they're buying those alternatives. So we have to be very careful with our language. And same thing, the, the, even the industry, the meat, dairy, and egg industry have started adopting these terms. Like I have seen ads where uh, producers will say, you know, we're against factory farming, buy our pork. <laughs> so they're even uh, buying, you know, buying into it using these terms to uh, say, no, 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 we're, we're not the bad guys. Wow. Um, so we have to be very, very careful. And another um, point that I often hear uh, animal advocates say is, um, you know, oh, 99% of, of, of animal products are factory farmed. And I hear this again and again thinking, well, what, do they really think that there is 1% out there that is pampering the animals and that these animals never go to slaughter and somehow they're getting meat dairy? No, it's, it's a fantasy. There's, there's no such thing as happy meat. There's no such yes. thing as a humane situation. So we have to be careful and say that all animal agriculture is uh, bad, that all animals suffer on all animal farms. You know, we need to not distinguish that there's factory farming and other, or there's 99% and it's 1%. We have to be clear that we want to stop all animal agriculture, and that's the true vegan message. Unfortunately, factory farming kind of has lost its vegan message. I think you're absolutely right. And even if it were wonderful, which I completely agree with you, that... that <laughs> Raising and killing sentient beings for us to eat has always been wrong. And we can say, Pythagoras was a vegetarian, Da Vinci was a vegetarian. This was way before factory farming. But I want to know um, about a particular kind of animal. We're down to just a couple of minutes. I'm so sorry the time is so short. You're with United Poultry Concerns, and so many people that I talk to, particularly people who are on the health side, will often say, well, I only eat chicken. And I just want to shake my head and say, let's let's rethink this. So why are chickens yeah. important and why are you with P, um, UPC? Yeah, well, you know, and it, it, is, it is very frustrating. And even just recently there was that uh, study that came out from the WHO that, uh, you know, said that, processed meat and red meat were uh, causing cancer. And, it, you know, and while that's great and I'm glad that these studies are coming out, it, it's very frustrating because it's almost a neon sign saying, eat chicken instead, you know. <laughs> and there's numerous, I mean, as far as the health concerns, you know, there, there's so much out there that uh, chicken, is, chicken and turkey meat are just as bad for you. It's, uh, you know, still high in saturated fat, high in cholesterol, uh, no fiber, no phytochemicals. It's still a recipe for disease. Uh, and, and, of course, all the, you know, Campylobacter and E. coli, um, you know, these, these birds are, are dirty. They're covered in feces. They're going to um, have pathogens um, in the processing. So they're very dangerous to eat. But besides that, you know, we kind of have, I think, an un unconscious hierarchy in our minds uh, when it comes to animals and how worthy an animal is, how, how conscious an animal is, how emotionally complex an animal is, how much an animal suffers. And, of course, dogs and cats are on the top tier of that, and then cows and pigs fall somewhere in between, and chickens and fish, for that matter, chickens, turkeys, fish, uh, fall down at the bottom where people feel that they're not as worthy somehow 
of, of their lives. And it's tragic because these animals are just really beautiful, amazing creatures. They have individual personalities and uh, emotional lives. And, um, you know, if, if you get to know a chicken or a turkey, they're just incredible beings. So they, and then they have the same capacity for suffering, the same capacity for pain, the same capacity for uh, emotion um, and complex reasoning that uh, any animal does. So, and, well, Go ahead. We have one minute. Well, yeah, and so just, you know, wrapping it up, I, I, I think people, that's the reason that United Poultry Concerns has focused on chickens, is to try to raise awareness about them and turkeys, that these birds are a beautiful, beautiful being that um, did not want to die and shouldn't die uh, just Thank for you. our palate and our plate. And what a perfect day for you to be sharing this because tomorrow, for anyone listening live in the United States, we'll be celebrating Thanksgiving. A lovely idea for a holiday. How wonderful to have a day for being grateful. And yet somehow it became this day for the horrible murder of millions of birds. So tell us really quickly, Hope, how are you going to be spending Thanksgiving? Well, uh, here in Sonoma County, we have an annual uh, community vegan potluck. We've done it eight years in a row. This is our eighth year. And we get over 100 people that come to all enjoy uh, um, a vegan, a big vegan potluck feast. And there's an amazing amount of food. And uh, it's just, it's great to spend the day with the family that you choose. And the family Isn't that, that true? Yeah, that is compassionate and uh, and that cares, that cares about animals. So it's wonderful. Uh, a wonderful thing to do. Thank you so much, Hope Bahanik. The book is The Ultimate Betrayal. We'll also link on the show notes to her wonderful post on freefromharm.org about factory farming and why maybe that word's a little passe for those of us who care about animals. Thanks for all the good you do. Everybody else, stay with us. We are going to be bringing on, I know, a rock star, Philip Wallen. We'll be right back. As Unity Online Radio continues to expand its programming and outreach to the world, we count on the support of listeners like you. Please make your donation today. Go to www.unity.fm and click on Donate Now. What if you could experience vibrant health? Help heal the planet and be a great friend to God's animal kingdom through simple choices you make at breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Authors Victoria and Adair Moran say you can do this easily, affordably, and deliciously in their new book, Main Street Vegan. Everything you need to know to eat healthfully and live compassionately in a real world. Loaded with practical tips, straightforward information, and fabulous recipes, Main Street Vegan will help you on your journey toward a plant-based diet. The perks include more energy, an easy way to keep your weight where you want it, feeling younger at Ever notice that there might be something not quite right, but you just can't put your finger on it? We may describe it as an inner stirring, a restlessness, a yearning to find our way home to our heart and higher purpose. Some of us may feel like we are living on borrowed time, that despite our accomplishments, what was once so important to us now just feels empty and meaningless. If you find your heart longing, wanting, looking for a path home to authenticity and purpose, join us for transformation, inspiration, hope, and possibility. Move toward your higher calling. Listen to The Call of Spirit with Evelyn Foreman and tune in to Possibility every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Central Time here on Unity Online Radio.
You're listening to Main Street Vegan with Victoria Moran. If you have questions or comments about today's topic or any other area of interest, we invite you to follow Victoria underscore Moran on Twitter or email her at MainStreetVegan at UnityOnlineRadio.org. Now, back to Main Street Vegan. Welcome back, everybody. You have asked for this next guest, and I just feel that we're so, so fortunate to be talking with him. He's Skyping in from Melbourne, Australia, where it is actually tomorrow. My brain so doesn't compute that kind of thing. You know, something today happened that was unusual. I always post about who's going to be on the show on Facebook and Twitter, and sometimes people say, oh, I like that person, or I read that book, or whatever it is. But today, a gentleman named Michael Taylor, down in Maryland, hey, Michael, if you're listening, wrote, there's no better person on the planet than Philip Wallen. (laughs) So I don't know, Philip, if you know Michael or if he is one of your many fans, but there's certainly plenty of them out there. Philip Wallen is an advocate for social justice, a former vice president of Citibank. He was cited at age 34 by Australian Business Magazine among the top 40 brightest and best headhunted executives in Australia. But today... He's on a different track. He supports some 500 humanitarian projects for children, animals, and the environment in more than 40 countries. He speaks to audiences around the world on diverse subjects such as ethics, business, the environment, and peace. And yet, Philip likes to be invisible. We'll ask him about that. He is a recipient of the Medal of Order of Australia. He's an honorary fellow of the Oxford Center of Animal Ethics in the UK. And you probably know him for his stunning presentation, Let's Get Animals Off the Table, in a 2012 debate. If you have not listened to this, oh my gosh, listen. I listened again, I've listened many times, but just before the show, just so I would really be up on everything, I listened again, and I found myself sitting alone in my living room going, woo, 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 and my neighbors probably thought, the crazy vegan lady is at it again. Welcome, Philip Wallen. Thank you, Victoria. Good morning. (laughs) Good morning. Ah, it's so funny to think that it's your morning. So I love this first question that was sent to us. It says, what made you decide to leave the world of lobsters and Learjets in exchange for shelters and slaughterhouses and become a vegan and an activist? Yes, uh, I used to be an investment banker and I specialized in, in corporate finance, mergers, acquisitions and takeovers. And as part of my job, I went out to see a conglomerate which had many industries. Um, but one of the businesses they owned turned out to be a slaughterhouse. Now, at the time, as you said, um, I, my favorite food was uh, filet mignon and lobster, a fact for which I'm so profoundly ashamed today. But what I saw in that slaughterhouse today, that day, I have to tell you, absolutely terrified me. It affected me so profoundly. I decided uh, I would immediately become a vegetarian. But I didn't know enough about the dairy industry at the time, but I was sent off to India to work on an assignment And um, I saw a a dairyman dragging his cow to the slaughterhouse. And the cow had been badly injured in a lorry accident and had broken her spine. Mm. And in order to get her to move, he was throwing chili powder into her eyes and shoving sharp objects up her anus and dragging the animal to to the slaughterhouse gates. And alongside her was her starving, bedraggled, terrified calf. Now, before he handed over this terrified, tragic animal to the slaughterman, this man milked her. Now, if that doesn't change the heart of a man, nothing will. So when I came home, I decided to study the dairy industry, and I discovered that um, milk is meat in liquid form. It's, it's a, dairies, by and large, are gulags of despair. So I decided there and then that I would uh, become a vegan. But it affected me so profoundly, I also decided to have a complete change in my way of life. And I decided to basically leave the corporate banking world and uh, devote what time I had left and what resources I had left 
to what I think is probably the greatest and most significant cause on the planet today. I'm sorry if that was a long and boring answer. Oh, no, it was it was a profound story. And I really think that anyone who just wants a close-up of, of animal treatment around the world needs to go to India because so much of it is out on the street. Here in the yep. States, there are all kinds of laws where you're not even allowed to go take a peek. But in India, it's all out to sea. I, I have a question before we leave your, your former life. My husband and I have talked about that every time we go to a a documentary premiere or something like that on, on these issues here in New York City, and there's a Q&A after, someone always says, but isn't the real problem capitalism? If we just got rid of capitalism and changed the entire economic system, then things would be fine for animals. And we kind of scratch our heads thinking what we know of Maoist China and the former Soviet Union, they weren't exactly bastions of animal rights. So coming from that world... How do you see that question? I think it's rather sloppy thinking. Uh, Capitalism, with all its faults, is uh, better than any other system we've devised yet. Um, If people would just get off this meat and dairy drug and become vegan, as most of us are now advocating, or all of us are advocating, uh, farmers are actually the ones with the most to gain. Um, Farming wouldn't end, it would boom. Only the product line would change. Farmers would make so much money they wouldn't even bother counting it. Now, because of our very bad uh, consumption habits and our our, our dietary lifestyle, the the wealthiest, most successful country on the planet is the United States. They would need $8 trillion invested in treasury bills just to uh, to fund their their long-term Medicare liabilities. And they don't generate enough cash flow even to service that debt. They could shut down every school, university, army, navy, air force, homeland security, FBI, CIA, and they still will not have enough free cash flow to service these unfunded liabilities. So when people say, you know, let's change the entire system, that's a cop-out. Real change starts at home. Change the way in which you behave, the way you interact with each other, the way in which you, you consume, and our problems are solved almost immediately. I often say that veganism is the Swiss army knife of the future. (laughs) One instrument solves so many of our problems, you know, the environment, um, our financial issues, our water, our deforestation, our human health, our fiscal budgets, and it ends animal cruelty. Now, that, in many ways, is uh, the magic silver bullet, and it's within our reach. I want that Swiss Army knife. <laughs> I want everybody to have one. So right. you, you made a statement in, in your stunning debate presentation. You said only 100 billion people have ever lived. We yes. torture and kill 200 billion sentient beings every week. Uh, no, that's 2 billion land animals. 2 billion. There, okay, thank you. Two, 2 billion land animals. Mm-hmm. There are 7 billion humans alive. And we stab and suffocate one billion ocean animals every three hours. Whoa. These are are, trillions of fish are ground up into pellets to feed to livestock. Vegetarian cows are now the world's largest ocean predators. And we've got to understand that the oceans are dying in our time. By 2048, all our fisheries will be dead. The lungs and the arteries of the earth. And let's remember that oceans sequester more CO2 than all the forests of the world put together. And 10,000 entire species are wiped out every year because of the actions of one. And we now face the sixth mass extinction in cosmological history. So if any other organism did this, a biologist would call it a virus. It really is a crime against humanity of unimaginable proportions. So we've got to understand, you know, the, the big picture and then work backwards to get down to our level as to what we can do as individuals and as communities and as nations. So today, because we're a couple of weeks, not quite maybe a couple of weeks past the terrorist attack in, in Paris, I think people are thinking about that. They're thinking about their personal safety and is it safe to travel and so forth. How does this tie in? How does our commitment to veganism and compassion affect peace on earth? 
Right. Uh, I'm often asked by people about my politics or my religious faith or you know stuff like that. It's a it's a it's a pretty common question. I often say about my politics that I'm a Marxist, but in the mold of Groucho. <laughs> um, and about uh, I think that the most beautiful word ever written in any country, in any language, at any time in human history, actually came from India, from the Upanishads three thousand years ago. Ahimsa, non-violence to any living being. So when people ask me what I am, I say I am ahimsa. So therefore, by definition, I must be vegan. Now, being vegan allows you to live such an elegant, enriched, and enlightened life, and not because it describes your nationality, your politics, religion, diet, or your lifestyle, but because it describes your character. It says you oppose violence wherever and whenever you hear it or see it. So, um, with the idea of terrorism, um, you know that livestock is the most powerful negative vector force in climate change. Um, Greenhouse gas emissions of methane emitted by livestock creates more pollution than all of transport put together, cars, trains, buses, ships, the lot. Now, you, I'm sure you know that the Himalayan ice fields are correctly called the third pole because they irrigate half the world's population uh, through the Ganges, Indus, Brahmaputra, Yangtze, Irrawaddy, Mekong rivers, and these glaciers are melting fast. I presented some of these numbers to 2,000 wealthy Indian entrepreneurs in New Delhi including Amartya Sen, who'd won India's Nobel Prize in Economics. And I mentioned to Mohamed Yunus, after he won the Nobel, that all the good that he had done with Grameen Bank would vanish when Bangladesh drowned. To say nothing about Mumbai, Manila, Calcutta, Ho Chi Minh City and Bangkok. And then we had dinner, my wife and I, with Al Gore, we discussed the same numbers. And last week I delivered a speech for Dr. Peter Doherty, Australia's Nobel Laureate in Medicine. And there was no arguments at all from these Nobel laureates, but lots of arguments from the meat and dairy lobby. Oh, yes. So I guess Upton, Upton Sinclair was right. It's impossible to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on him not understanding it. So now I, I always go back to what your own uh, Admiral uh, Denny McGinn, who's the chief of U.S. warfighting requirements, said. He said that, we have learned that nations will raid and invade long before they starve. And, of course, in, we freak out when 10,000 refugees arrive on our shores. Imagine greenhouse gas emissions caused by livestock hitting 500 parts per million or a three-degree temperature rise, creating 100 million eco-refugees. This calamity will reshape the geopolitical landscape forever. We are facing the perfect storm. If, if any nation had developed weapons that could wreak such havoc on the planet, we would launch a preemptive military strike and bomb it back into the Bronze Age. But we can't, because it's, it's not a rogue state. It's an industry. Meat. The good news is we don't have to bomb it. We can just stop buying it. So George Bush was wrong. The axis of evil does not run through Iraq, Iran, and North Korea. It runs through our dining tables. Weapons of mass destruction are our knives and forks, and increasingly nowadays, our chopsticks. Uh-huh. So this is a, a long way of, ex, of explaining that, you know, we by 2048, the game would have changed uh, irretrievably. And whilst we've got a little bit of time on our hands, Let's change it for the better, for ourselves, for the planet, and for the two billion animals, land animals we kill every week. Yes. I'm so happy that I asked you that question because I think I often feel, and and many people that I talk to feel incredibly powerless at this point in history. But as long as we are vegan and sharing the vegan message, we are more powerful than we think. And I think you've Absolutely. just Absolutely. Victoria, that. you're perfectly correct. You know, the, um, Margaret Mead said, uh, 
Uh, never doubt that a few committed people can change the world. Indeed, that is the only thing that ever has. Well, let's look at some metrics. I like looking at numbers as well. You know, there are only 13 million Jews in the world, and they play such a vibrant role in international affairs. Look at the number of Nobel Prizes they win every year. Um, Trix and I sat in the stadium during the Olympics, full of pride. As Australia, with a population of only 20-odd million people, won more medals than every country in the world, with the exception of the United States and Russia. Tibet's population is only 3 million. But who hasn't heard of the plight of the Tibetan? But there are over 600 million vegetarians in the world, and that is bigger than the United States, England, France, Germany, Spain, Italy, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, all put together. If they were one nation, they would be bigger than the 27 nations of the European Union. And despite this massive demographic footprint, they are still drowned out by the raucous, hunting, shooting, killing cartel <laughs> to believe that violence is the answer when it should not even be a question. Ugh, indeed. I think our leaders, our, our listeners will be so happy to hear that you met with Al Gore and they'll probably want to know, is he vegan? We hear that he's vegan. Could you tell? Uh, we, we asked him, but at the time he wasn't. This is five, five or six years ago. He certainly was not vegan. I don't even think he was vegetarian. But my wife, um, being Dutch, she was quite confrontational and asked him why he didn't make a bigger issue about livestock um, in, um, in his big presentation. And he very politely and honestly said, I didn't at the time, but my next book will. Ooh. And I, th- I think he has kept his word. I haven't read it yet, but I, I, I understand that he has kept his word on that subject. Oh, that, that's wonderful. So you've gotten a, a lot of press in, in the past few years. So what is the reaction that you're getting from the mainstream media to your message? <laughs> right. I must confess, uh, that debate you referred to earlier was the first debate I'd ever been in. I'd never been a public person. When, when they called me up and asked me if I'd like to go in a debate, without thinking, I said, okay, fine. But I had no idea what I was laying myself in for. But I, I, I did cop a lot of um, criticism from the press. Um, at the Australian of the Year Awards, for example, I was attacked by a mainstream journalist who said, uh, Mr. Wallen, I'm surprised a man of your standing would say that meat is murder. A little old lady with a budgerigar is offending God. Livestock production is unethical. There will be no peace until we stop killing animals. Industry is unattractive. And animals are like human children. Can't you see how offensive that is to our rural and farming audience? Well, this was my diplomatic counterpunch. <laughs> well, if, if you're going to quote me, you might want to try doing it honestly. I did say... A robin redbreast in a cage puts all heaven in a rage. But that was William Blake in Augury's of Innocence. And I did say, the commandment thou shalt not kill applies to the murder of any living being. It was inscribed on the human breast long before it was proclaimed from Mount Sinai. As long as there are slaughterhouses, there will be battlefields. But that was Leah Tolstoy, not me. And yes, I did say, the roots of cruelty are not strong, just widespread. But the time will come when inhumanity, protected by custom, will succumb to humanity championed by thought. A man is ethical only when all life is sacred to him. But actually, that was Albert Schweitzer, winner of the Nobel Peace Prize. And yes, I did say, as long as we kill animals, there will never be peace in the world. It is only one step to the concentration camps of Hitler and Stalin. There will be no justice as long as man stands with a knife and destroys those who are weaker than him. But actually, that was Isaac Singer, a Nobel Prize winner. And yes, I admit, I did have something to say about animals and children. The wolf will lie down with a lamb, the leopard with the young goat, the young lion with the young ones of the herd, and a little child will lead them. Well, that came from the prophet Isaiah. And no, I didn't say a darn thing about greed and ambition. That wasn't me. That was Jesus. Blame him. <laughs> Behold the birds of the air and the lilies of the field, King Solomon and all his glory. 
was not arrayed as one of these. And for good measure, he threw in a left hook and an uppercut. Whatever you do to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. So as you are you, as a journalist, suggesting that your rural audience is offended by Nobel Prize winners and the prophets, or should I just go home and burn my books? I seem to recall that was a strategy favoured by Pol Pot. Well, the journalist was speechless, and the next day he attacked me for being a radical. You know, honestly, we need another radical Copernicus and Galileo to remind us that we are not the centre of the universe. So that's a long way of answering the question that the mainstream media is so deeply embedded into the meat, dairy, and the animal industrial complex that they treat us as outriders. But uh, we are going to win this battle in the end. It, 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 there, is no, there is no chance of us losing. You see, it's not just about animal rights. It's also about human wrongs. And animal rights is now the greatest social justice issue since the abolition of slavery. Um, I often tell my, my friends that I encourage into this movement that this is actually a revolutionary event, and it's more powerful than the Industrial Revolution, the Reformation, the Hubble Telescope, or anything ever conceived by Galileo, Copernicus, Einstein, Darwin, or Freud, because it protects the most precious of all things, life. So vegans are on the right side of history. They are actually creating a new enlightenment, the second renaissance. And I can't wait for that day to dawn. Well, you're helping it to dawn very, very strongly and in such a literate manner. I love the quotations that you used with the journalist. I think we're missing a little bit of that at this point in, in the vegan movement. When I first started reading these things as a teenager, there was only one full-length book that I could get hold of about vegetarianism. It was called Why Kill for Food by an Englishman named Jeffrey Rudd. It was written in 1956. And it was very philosophical as well as being practical. He talked about the people that that you quoted and these ideas. This is in our history. This isn't just something that happened uh, with with PETA or or with uh, Diet for a Small Planet. Right. How does your grasp of, of of history and literature and philosophy impact your vegan position? I think, in a sense, it enhances it. It gives you another prism through which one looks at life and our relationships, uh, not just with um, the animal kingdom, but with those close to us, you know, our, our loved ones, our neighbors, our associates, the people we work with. Um, it's, I, I describe it in a sense like an enchanted web. Um, I've given a speech or two on my notion of the enchanted web, and we probably don't have time to go into that. But I, I, I love the words of W.H. Auden after reading and developing, I guess, uh, a sense of where I want to be and where I think we all want to be. Uh, he, he wrote, um, if equal affection cannot be, let the more loving one be me. I think by, by understanding or appreciating literature, and the relationships we have with each other and the animal kingdom, and realizing that all this will end soon. We, we won't live forever. Let's do the best we can in the most compassionate, gentle way possible. Um, Lovely. I, I fear, Philip, that if you don't give us at least uh, a definition of the Enchanted Web, that so many people will write to me to have you back on, that I will be bothering you across continents yet again. So what's I'll, the Enchanted I'll, Web? When I was a very young boy, behind the school chapel was a small jungle. And I was always intrigued by the spider webs that, would, that were in, in the bushes and trees. And I would gently touch a single strand of a... Of, of the web, and try to predict how the shape of the web and the web would change uh, 
depending on the pressure I put on, on, on the strand. And the shape of the web always changed in nonlinear, unpredictable ways. And I realized then, and I never thought I'd one day earn a living out of doing it as a merchant banker, I realized that everything is connected to everything is connected to everything. In a sense, it's, it's, it's a little bit like Gleick's book called Chaos on Chaos Theory. Small perturbations, a butterfly flapping her wings in, in, uh, in the Amazon affects climate in the South China Seas, typhoons in Africa, and um, river systems in Australia. So this enchanted web shows that small events can have massive, unpredictable, non-linear consequences. And this is so true with, with the way in which we have devastated uh, this planet by, uh, by animal agriculture, killing our oceans with one million square kilometers of dead zones, deforesting um, our, our mountains, our plains, ruining our health, blowing out our fiscal budgets, and inflicting such massive, unimaginable torture on these innocent, sentient living beings. The time has come when we need to step back and reappraise what this enchanted web really looks like and where we play in an important, significant and compassionate role. Mm. Well, you remind me of what I heard from the first vegetarian I ever knew. Thou canst not disturb a flower without troubling a star. <laughs> Francis <Perfect>. Thompson. <laughs> <laughs> So you have something called the Kindness Trust. Tell us about that and what it does. Sure. I call it the Kindness Trust, but the truth of the matter is it's, it's just, just me. Uh, and now, now that I'm married, it's my wife and I. We basically decided to take what money we'd made, uh, I'd made in the past, and uh, invest it in good causes. I call myself a venture capitalist for good causes. So I, I, I basically provide advice, uh, guidance, and money to causes that I, I like. Uh, basically, the strategy is to um, deliver maximum leverage. In other words, get most bang for my buck. Um, funding initiatives that are scalable. I focus to a large extent on so-called developing countries. The projects are always built on a pro-vegan uh, platform. And all of them are, generally speaking, mission critical, like flood, disaster relief, religious sacrifices, puppy mills, uh, animal birth control, uh, CNVR projects, um, live animal exports, uh, illegal fishing, anti-whaling, for example, with Sea Shepherd, anti-vivisection, poaching, that sort of thing. You, you get that. So I build things and I fund things like schools, clinics, shelters, um, sanctuaries, orphanages, um, oncology wards, uh, palliative care, or we build um, uh, bore wells, biogas plants, um, provide vehicles, um, ambulances, uh, rescue centers, that sort of thing. And we focus essentially on children, animals, and the environment. Those are the, the three areas. And we cut them into silos so I can manage them a little easier, um, into kindness farms, kindness mobile restaurants, Kindness Oceans, Kindness Skies, Kindness Kids, that sort of thing. I think we've got about eight silos in which each one of these projects seem to fit quite neatly. So that, that's a, fundamentally what we do. Oh, what a beautiful way to live your life. Now, you've said several times in our conversation that animal rights, veganism, that this is a justice issue. And within this movement, there are many who, who also hold that view, but who believe that anything other than working specifically for universal veganism is not only unimportant, but possibly counterproductive. Where do you come down on that? Yes, I've heard that people say that's, you know, single issue. If that's the question, single issue. Yes, that's issue. the question. Campaigns are, um, are fraught with difficulty. Uh, Victoria, uh, this is a broad church. Everybody is welcome. 
I don't have a problem. If someone is want, wants to focus all their attention on, for example, rescuing the moon bears in China or the, the, the canned lion hunting in, in South Africa or the anti-whaling pro, um, campaign with Sea Shepherd in the Southern Ocean in Antarctica, that's fine. As long as they have a very strong pro-vegan bias, that's fine. And even if they don't, given a little bit of time, they will wake up to it as well. I mean, I mean, look at me. I, I'm a prime example. 25 years ago, I barely knew what a vegan was. But I got involved in one single project, and within a year, I'd become probably one of the more outspoken, if you like, um, vegans around. Well, let's so talk I, 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 Sorry, I beg your pardon. No, go ahead. Yeah, so I, I, I think we... We spend too much time contemplating our navel, fighting amongst ourselves. The bad guys outnumber us. They're better resourced. They're better organized. And we spend a disproportionate amount of our energy uh, fighting amongst ourselves. Well, I'd rather be fighting the real enemy. Well, a- amen to that. Now, you use the word outspoken to describe yourself. And according to your introduction, you're, you're really a quiet kind of uh, person who doesn't like necessarily to be in the limelight, but you're willing to be there for a cause. And you're also one of the greatest orators I have ever heard. And that is a skill that I practice myself, and I am so in awe of people who, who are superb at it. So how did you get to be two people in one Philip? <laughs> uh, it's very sweet of you to say that. Uh, Victoria, I, I, I don't actually think I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a good speaker. I care deeply about what I'm doing. Um, I know I probably know a hundred people who do a better job than I do in my just in my circle of friends. Um, Rupert Murdoch once uh, described me in one of his journals as reclusive, and uh, he's probably right. I, I really am reclusive. But in the last few years, I've, I've been prized out of this little um, cave that I've been hiding in, and uh, I've had to come out and you know face this uh, uh, this brave new world. But I'm actually comforted to know that this movement, if you like, is growing rapidly, and you've actually asked a very important, you've raised a very important issue. This is a justice issue. There will, there can never be peace until we stop killing other living beings. It never can. You see, peace is not just the absence of war. It is the presence of justice. And until there is justice for all people from different countries, races, castes, creeds, and to species, there will never be peace. I often say that I'd like to be a little bit, in a, in a small way, like Médecins Sans Frontières. You know, we cross the borders of of nations, of language, of religion, of politics, but we also cross the bloodiest border of all, the border of species. We go that extra step. So not only do we fund projects for, for animals and children, but we, we fund projects for the arts, or road trauma, or for peace processes, things like that. So it's a rather holistic way of, of looking at um, the issues that confront us. And, of course, in many ways, I understand why people think we are now entering the new dark ages with terrorisms, bombings, killings, Increased consumption of um, of all things, but particularly um, animals. Um, how much longer have we got? And of course, that re- raises another question about sustainability. And uh, of course, we don't have time to explore that in much depth. Well, I would like to explore all of this in great depth with you. You're almost making me want to save my shekels and get myself to Australia just to see if 
we could have tea one afternoon. In our final minute, what really, really matters to Philip Wallen? I think ultimately only three things, I guess, really matter. Um, How gently you lived, how carefully you related to each other, and how gracefully you let go of things that were not meant for you. Meat was not meant for you. It's time we let go of it and grew up and lived as adult, compassionate, educated, and enlightened human beings. And I think those those things matter to me a great deal. And I'm sure they matter to everybody. And I, I think it's, it's a journey we're all on, and some do it earlier than others. But we're all on the same journey, all on the same train, and um, I can't wait to get to that final destination. Oh, absolutely. And when anybody gets here, I always like to quote the husband of a friend of mine. She was always trying to be better and feeling that she was falling short. And he would say to her, you're right on time, doing fine. (laughs) And to everybody (laughs) listening, wherever you are on this path, you're right on time, doing fine. And you can take it even a step further with the wonderful information and inspiration that you've heard today. Thank you so much, Philip Wallen. Thank you, Jeff Comfort and Unity Online Radio. To everyone who is celebrating Thanksgiving tomorrow, golly, we have lots to be thankful for. I have this particular wonderful episode to be thankful for, and certainly all of my listeners all around the world. To everyone, God bless you, and eat your veggies. Thank you for listening to Main Street Vegan. Join us every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Central Time as Victoria Moran entertains, educates, and inspires you on your vegan journey. This program is sponsored by Main Street Vegan. To learn more about Victoria or to explore training with Main Street Vegan Academy as a vegan lifestyle coach, go to www.mainstreetvegan.net. That's www.mainstreetvegan.net. What is the key to happiness? Would you like to find the fountain of youth? How about all the money and love that you could handle? Well, my friends, it is there for you. You just need to strip off the false beliefs that keep your divine inheritance from being attracted into your life. You need to be real. Be vulnerable. Be naked. What are you waiting for? Let's get naked. This transformational program with Reverend Heidi Alfrey is an invitation to explore and remove the blocks that keep you from emotional freedom. Listen to Heidi and her revealing guests as they embrace the power of spiritual nakedness as a guaranteed way to live an authentic and transparent life. Expose yourself to your greatness on Mondays at 3 p.m. Central Time. Let's get naked. No dress code required. Only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. You gotta get rid of your butt. It's bigger than it would appear. It hinders your forward movement when you keep bringing up the often before even beginning have we declared something impossible in our mind we often picture ourselves as inadequate or consider a task too great to attain much of our success depends on the thoughts we hold in mind our experience depends even more on the persistence with which we affirm those thoughts a wise person said it's a funny thing about life if you refuse to accept anything but the best you very often get it In Unity, we believe in the power of words and thoughts held in mind. If you sincerely ask yourself, how do I really think things ought to be? You may be surprised at your answer. You are destined to do great works. Expect it. 
and see the positive changes in your world. This message has been brought to you by the Association of Unity Churches International. To find a Unity Church near you, visit www.unity.org. Hi, I'm Liz Winter, and I have been a medium and a spiritual development teacher for over 30 years. On my podcast, All Aboard the Medium Ship, I want to share the message with you that there is a wealth of love and comfort available to you from the spirit world. On my podcast, you can experience this comfort and peace for yourself through gentle guided meditations and helpful messages. Make sure you subscribe and follow so you never miss an episode. Part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network.